Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Mark 16, beginning to read at verse 9, concluding then on the 20th verse, beginning to read with verse 9, hear now the word of the Lord. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, And when they heard it, that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he was risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will be no means, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. May the Lord bless this to our good understanding today. I preach this sermon today. I'm not really in a very good mood because I'm preaching about, I'm preaching from a text of scripture that the majority of the Christian church today says is not scripture. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Um, people that come to the Bible, <clears throat> they come to the Bible that was handed down to them over the uh, over the centuries, and they just take this page, that page, rip it out. For someone who knew nothing of God, certainly knew nothing of his promises to save me from my sin, that this word and this Bible is more precious to me than anything in this world, more precious than my own life, for sure. And uh, this business that we call text criticism, it's a sophisticated, abstract name. It stands for that activity that is is done today where men, for their own reasons, they have constructed various theories, but they they come to the Bible and they, they impose their theories upon the text that's there, 
And they say, based upon their, these theories and these reasonings, they say this or that verse or this or that portion of Scripture should not be there. And it just so happens that the long ending of, John, of Mark that we have just read, the, this long ending is the largest portion that they have disdained and said does not belong in the Scriptures. Now you get a, the, the title of the sermon today is the audacity of the modern text critic. Most of this has started has come into to bear since the 1850s, roughly. So you can imagine here these men and their university diplomas, for it comes out of the educational world. Uh, these men and their diplomas, they come along and uh, they say to the church, "It doesn't matter really." that the church has had Mark 16, 9 through 20. Uh, it doesn't matter that they've had this for 2,000 years. They say it doesn't matter that there have been sermons on this text for 2,000 years. It doesn't matter that men like Augustine or Aquinas or Calvin or Luther or the, any of the... It doesn't matter that they thought that this was in the Scripture. We, today, with our new theories are able to judge. And we stand above the scriptures and we tell you what is in the Bible and what is not in the Bible. It's, it's so bad. This, this, this theory or this sense of this mindset is so bad today that there are whole very sophisticated committees with men making $100,000 a year or more who, who sit in every year. They're making judgments on on what part of the Bible is there, should be there, and what part of the Bible shouldn't be there. And the, the rest of the world is supposed to wait with bated breath for these zions of sophistication to make their declarations. It's, it's really unbelievable. Worse, Our own seminaries, that is the Napark seminaries, our own seminaries um, largely uh, acknowledge the, the uh, integrity of this enterprise. Most of them would not go as far as uh, I've ranted this morning, but they, they, give, um, they give credibility, they give credence to this stuff. And... Uh, I think if you if you went to all of our seminaries and you 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 read Mark sixteen nine through twenty and you said is this part of our Bible or is this not part of our Bible they probably would say oh yeah yeah it really it probably is you know they probably but they're not enthusiastic about it at all and they they're willing to justify the theory the theories by which these men have uh, cut these portions out of the Bible and. Uh, raise questions about them. <clears throat> it's the most, to me, it's the most audacious thing in the world. When the, when the church uh, has uh, agreed that the Greek and the Hebrew text, which it has had, is bona fide and reliable and uh, inerrant. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, this, this is a great encouragement to me. Despite all of the, I, I'm in a, I'm in an intellectual minority, really. 
And I, I know that men in our church are in, in an intellectual minority. It's not just me, happily. <laughs> men like Stephen have the same problem, you know. Uh, but um, our confession sides with us, and that, that's what makes me happy. It's another reason why I love the Westminster Confession. Uh, first of all, in, cha- in the very first chapter of the Confession of Faith on the Word of God, uh, paragraph 8 says, In the Old Testament, or the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original languages are not known to all the people of God who have right thereunto, and interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of the Lord to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation under which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, that they may worship him in all in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures, they may have hope. So that focuses on the Greek and the Hebrew, and it mentions there that God has a singular care and providence, and through that he has kept pure the original text through all the ages. So anyone who is a, in the Reformed churches has uh, sworn to this, this particular uh, theory. <clears throat> and then, um, um, in a following paragraph... This is one of those weird. I, I don't. I'm. I'm just. I'm mentally confused. I don't know whether I've, I've blurred two portions of this together, but um, no, I guess those are the two. Those are the two points. The 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 the. the purity of the, the the care of the Greek and the Hebrew, and then the fact that there is to be. Uh, translation done. And uh, the fact that the divines understood this process and uh, they weren't saying that every translation is uh, is inerrant uh, or perfect, as perfect as it could be, but as it's translated correctly, it partakes of the same blessed uh, perfections as the Hebrew and the Greek. So our, our, our confession of faith uh, has this view or this theory of the protection and the preservation of the text in all ages, which is completely contrary to this modern theory of what we call text criticism. Uh, criticism being the idea that people are standing open above the text of Scripture, that they're making judgment of, judgments about it based upon some other idea. And in this case, the idea would be what should be in the text and what should not be. So the, the, the sermon is the audacity of the modern text critic. Now, when we come to 
this portion of the scripture, <clears throat> um, we see, well, let me just say one more, a couple more things about how this came to be. In the 1850s, there were a number of scholars that were, um, many of them were go running around the world at the time looking for ancient manuscripts, that is, copies of the Bible that are either in whole or in part. They were looking for these and searching for them. One of them was a, a Russian, uh, uh, ostensibly Christian, Count Tischendorf. Uh, and at that time, he found uh, there were two two old copies of the Bible that he found, one in the Vatican archives and the other in Sinai, in a, in a monastery there in Sinai. And so there were two, well, the uh, Vaticanus, the, the one in the Vatican is called Codex Vaticanus. That was found first, or that was acknowledged first. That came into the purview of the scholars first, about 1850, and then... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, about 1835, and then about 1850, this uh, other codex, this other copy of the Bible called Codex Sinaiticus, <laughs> from Sinai, and then Iticus on it. Um, and and so and both of these, both of those codexes basically agree. There are some differences between them, but not many. And so they, they, in this case, in the case of the Gospel of Mark, they both left off the Gospel of Mark. And these, uh, the one, well, they, they supposedly they date from about 350 A.D., so 350 years after the, the uh, after the coming of Christ, 100, 100 200 years after, uh, 200, um, 250 after the death of the apostles, um, these... These Bibles were supposedly copied. They're, they're hand-copied Bibles um, and uh, from various parts of the Christian empire at the time. And uh, and so these were then, they, they're, so they're taking, they're trying to get older. They're, the idea, their theory is that the older that you can get, the more pure you can get. That is a supposition on itself, which is untested. But um, that was their theory. Some senses it makes sense. But uh, based upon that, based upon these two versions and then other copies of the scriptures that they were finding, they reached the conclusion that the Gospel of Mark here uh, should not be a part of our Bibles, even though that was a part of every Bible that was that was uh, copied at that time. And there were, um, there were thousands and thousands of copies of the Bible that contained Mark 16, 9 through 20, but based upon their own theories, Tischendorf and others, uh, uh, revolutionized the idea of, of how we determine what our Bible is. Now, if you study their lives, <clears throat> these men were not uh, pious, godly men. Uh, first of all, there's some suspicion that the that this was one of the Vatican's ways of getting the Protestant Church off of that their stubborn doctrine of sola scriptura. Because if you, if they could get them fascinated with Bibles and process instead of the word of God that is, then they thought that the people might be more prone to listen to Mother Church. Rome. To me, that's a very feasible explanation of things uh, and the, the way Rome has always behaved, trying to get people away from the word of God onto their own word of God, the, 
the traditions of the elders instead of the traditions of Christ. Um, but whatever, uh, we see that this happened, this started about 1850, and then it's just gathered power and storm as the centuries have gone on here. The two, basically, it's almost two centuries, 200 years since that time. We're closing in on 2050 here, and then it would be roughly 200 years since this enterprise got started. <laughs> so um, they want to take this portion of the scriptures away from us. And um, they they just think that this is an, a case, this is an issue of academics, uh, that the rest of us uh, who disagree with them are being unreasonable. And uh, in essence, they're saying church history be damned. It doesn't matter how many thousands of years have gone by where this was accepted or how many hundreds of men, great men of the faith, believed in this and preached from it and that sort of thing. No matter how many sermons that were preached from this portion of Scripture, uh, it's flushed down the toilet. It's of no account because of what we say today. Now, to me, that is a, a blasphemous or audacious way of thinking of ourselves and evaluating the situation. If you've been saved by the grace of God, the Word of God is above you. It is superior to you. It judges you. Do you, do, you do not judge it. If the Holy Spirit takes this Word and renders your soul apart spiritually. You're in no position to stand over the Bible with a scissors like Thomas Jefferson and clip here and there and create a Bible of your own liking. So admittedly, there is, there's a spiritual dimension to this, a spiritual part of this enterprise about which we can, that we can barely talk because it's the operations of the Spirit of God. But we can describe it as I'm trying to do this morning, and we can call each other to realize that it's a bit audacious to come along after two, roughly 2,000 years and, uh, and tug and clip and tear at the Bible based upon the theories that we have today. If we have such theories as these, there, there is, uh, there is t more than enough time to, to pick and to tear and to inspect them and maybe after 2,000 years of expecting them we'll be ready we'll be ready to to say well maybe there's something there but I doubt it but people are so quick today based on what some professor has said to just throw off so much of what God has given them it's it's utterly to me it's utterly amazing and utterly audacious now if we look at this text, we say, if we came along with these kinds of theories, what is there about this text that is so deficient or so questionable or so challenging that we think it ought not to be there, that we in our own minds can construct some theory by which we're justified to disqualifying that which is written? Now when he rose early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. When they heard that he was alive and they had not and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Does this glorify the apostles? Does this, does this sound uh, abnormal? 
based on the things that we know, we know about God and men? I don't think so. I think it fits in perfectly with what we know about God and men. We think about Mary Magdalene. Can you imagine a woman who was possessed by seven devils, seven demons, uh, and uh, whether she was physically uh, thrashed about, we know that the demons are violent in our hearts and our spirits. I can I can't imagine. I've I I, I don't think I've met too many women in my life uh, crawling along the street. Or I, I know when I was a young man working for my father's meat company, we were in many bars, and there were often men and women in these bars. Uh, 11 o'clock in the morning that were barely alive. And sometimes I would talk to them and um, get just a glimpse into their world. And I could see then, with my lack of experience, I could see then how desperate their life situations were and how little they grasped of reality, how little security they had, how devoid they were of real love and affection, how desperate they were, how desperate they were. And here's a woman with seven demons in her. She must have been a load. I just can't imagine. You think you've got a crazy neighbor, you know, or a crazy relative, somebody who needs help, But Mary Magdalene had been touched by the power of Christ so that she became one of the most famous women in history. He made her whole. He put her back together again. He gave her a purity which she no doubt had lost many times over. She was virtually a, a, a street urchin, a piece of waste or garbage in the street. And our Lord Jesus had bent down with his healing hands of the great physician, and he had touched her and raised her up. And it was to her after his crucifixion and to a few people like her that he came and he appeared. And out of mercy showed her that he was not dead, that that which he said about himself, that he would rise again from the dead, it had come true. The wonderful news, the power of God. He blessed her. He raised her up. And uh, this was the kind of thing that she took to the others. She must have, can you imagine her? If, if I'm upset about the textual critics, can you imagine Mary Magdalene with her story telling this to other people and them kind of just, you know, zombie like, who knows, well, you know, so what? And here's this woman who had had her life changed so wonderfully and graphically. Now, what about that? What, what's wrong with that? You know, what, uh, what, uh, what does the textual critic find fault with in that story? And that's the way it is with all of this stuff here. It's all brilliant stuff. Uh, he appeared to two of them in verse 12 as they walked about the country, and they told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. It's not how, it's not how nice our, our tract is. It's not how wonderful our language is as we ta tell others about Jesus Christ. We can be apostles of God. You've just seen the resurrection. And if God is not with us, 
People will not believe us. They will not. They'll have no appreciation for the message that we say. Verse 14, the Great Commission. Is that something that ought to be exercised from the text? Later appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief. Jesus was never never fit into the pattern that we think that he ought to fit into. And so here he rebukes the other. Should this text be excised because he was crude and a bit abrupt with his disciples who did not believe him uh, as they had received these reports? But true to faith and true to his goodness and his integrity, Jesus rebuked them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief because they did not believe that he had risen. And he said to them, Despite the fact that they had not believed, he said to them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Our Lord does not disqualify us for stupidity, for hard-heartedness. He just ratchets up our faith a couple of turns and sends us back into the fray. And these men went back into the fray. They went all over the known world at that time. Reports out that they went to Spain and India, the different ones of them, throughout the Mediterranean taking this gospel, and they, all of them, they, they, they took it with a kind of courage that led to all of them, except the, God, the Apostle John being killed as a martyr. These same ones who could not raise themselves out of their stupor to believe people like Mary Magdalene. Does this deserve to be excised from the scripture? Should this be ripped out? like the page that I ripped out earlier, before your face. Jesus has some tremendous doctrine in this passage. Verse 16, he says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. In other words, he who believes in the the merits of Christ, the accomplishments of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the the sin-bearing of Christ, he who believes in that, can call himself saved immediately, but then it says here he will be saved. In other words, in the day of the Lord, when the day of judgment, he will be saved. That that state of salvation will go with him from the from the time of faith to the time of the judgment. And it also mentions that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Baptism links us to the visible church. We must be linked to the visible church. It's not enough for us to simply have this inner feeling. We must test the inner feeling of faith with the organized church. It must measure up to the, the to what the elders have heard before of other people in their confessions. It must stand up to the questions that might be asked of them about their lives. But if somebody has the subject of faith and then they put it through the objective tests of the visible church, they get baptized, they obey Christ. You can't you can't say, I believe in Christ, and then not and then not obey him. He says, believe and be baptized. So if we believe, then we're baptized. When we're baptized, we're taken into the visible church. Baptism is the, t- the token by which we get into the visible church, whether by infancy or by adult faith. And so um, this is great doctrine. It's very important Christian doctrine that is taught here in verse 16. Key to all kinds of controversies that we've had in the history of the church. And then the contrary thought, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus himself says, if you do not believe in me, you are condemned already. How can you possibly expect to obtain righteousness if you do not take my righteousness? 
How can you possibly think that you will ever work it up? How can you ever, how can you possibly believe that you will obtain it in some mysterious way if you did not obtain it from me, the one of the scriptures, the one of the Christian church? And so these are important um, doctrines. These, these are important things that should not be cut out of the scriptures. And then verse 17, the signs that will follow. Now, some people say, well, that, that mentions snakes here. So this we, we need to excise the last uh, 11 verses here of Mark because it mentions a, sn a snake. I don't think so, you know. Because these signs were important. And all of these signs, they're testified to in the book of Acts where these kinds of things happened. Uh, great miracles were done. Exorcisms were done. People who were bit by snakes were Saved, they were they were not allowed to die, um, and um, uh, verse twenty uh, acknowledges that these are all signs, miraculous signs, showing that God that God would, that everything that God said here was true, and so He gave attestations to His declarations to prove that He was saying with what He was saying. Was true. These are signs not of nothing. You know, you can drive down the road and you, there's a sign, a, a sign by the side of the road that says curve. And you drive for the next 10 miles and there's no curve. You say, wait a minute. That sign said there was a curve. Where's the curve? These are signs indicating something about what God was doing. They are attestations of truth. And these are all important. Uh, important things. The, the the ascension of Christ, verse 19, which is, a which is spoken of in the other Gospels. But the way Mark does it here at the end is a little bit different than the other Gospels. But I say all the more glory to Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel has a lot of different uh, differences uh, associated with it. It sees the, 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 the reign of the Gospel as being one of great battle and conflict. Begins in the very first chapter when they go into Jesus goes into the first church, the first peaceful, sleeping, lazy church, and the devils are roused out of the pews because they can't stand the presence of Christ. They've been sleeping there. No one else has brought that kind of spiritual purity there. But Jesus comes and bing, bang, boom! The devils are awakened because of his integrity and his truth. It just seems to me that. All of this, all of this last part of Mark is good stuff, and it, and it not only it insults my intelligence, but it raises my anger that men would suppose that they have the superiority to judge the Word of God like they have done. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God. Help us to love thy word and help us to see how we must keep this word as our superior. If we dare to contrive theories, so-called theories, supposed theories by which we come and then can cut and paste and tear at thy word. Oh God, oh God deliver us unto destruction. For we are worthy of it, well worthy of it. Completely overturn us, O Lord. 
Return our houses to us desolate, as it says in Psalm 69. Curse us, O Lord, with thine everlasting curse if we reject thy word with ourselves as its judges. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.